Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join your hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey guys, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. This is Dr. Karen. We have a really, really good show for you guys today. Thank you for joining us. Phil, who do we have today? Well, you know, today we have a guy on this show who uh, has become a friend. He has become, uh, you know, more than a friend, actually, because he's a Manchester United supporter as well. So that's something that, you know, just creates a bond, especially in the midst of this season. If you're if you're at all a, a football fan, um, that is the soccer version of football, uh, you know that Manchester United's kind of having a, a tough season this year so far. And so we have bonded even more in the midst of that. So anyway, for most of you, that means nothing. And, you know, and I'm going to continue talking about soccer on the show. And I apologize to all. Actually, I don't apologize because I think it is it's such a great way to learn. Um, anyway, so that's just something that is a is a bonus coverage for Ryan. He is also um, an amazing man who you're going to learn more about today. Um, he has a, a beautiful wife, Kayla, and they they uh, have six children, four of whom they've adopted out of foster care. They have spent a lot of time with Empowered to Connect and training people at the different conferences through that. They're uh, you know, practitioners of TBRI, which I know every time I say those four letters, Karen perks up. And so um, they also are co-founders of One Big Happy Home, which Ryan's going to tell you about. Um, and, and Ryan's so much more than that, and he's going to share a lot of wisdom here with us today. And so I just, I just uh, know that you're going to want a pen and paper out. Uh, also want you to connect with us um, on our website through Facebook um, and, you know, leave a review on iTunes if you haven't done so already. That really does help us get this podcast out to more people. If it's helped you, I know it will help others as well. Um, and, uh, you know, and I hope you will share it with uh, your friends and family and anyone else who you think might be able to uh, benefit from the wisdom of Ryan and so many other people we've had on this show. So with that, we are going to send you to the interview I was able to do with Ryan North. Ryan, it's so great to finally get you on the show. Well, Phil, it is uh, so great to be with you um, and have an opportunity to discuss um, children from hard places and vulnerable kids in the world uh, instead of our usual uh, Manchester United World Cup visits. So this will be a little different. Yeah, and I think most of our audience would not appreciate that as much as we do. So I think it is a good thing that we're probably focusing on the trauma-informed care and other things such like that that we uh, most of our audience will really be interested in. I know that your experience will give them a whole lot to think about uh, today. So before we get into kind of the meat of it, can you just share a bit about um, you and, and, uh, and how you got to be doing what you're doing today? Yeah, so I'll try to do like the the, the sixty second version of that. Um, when um, my dad um, was was raised in what we would today uh, call a kinship placement, um, and so uh, and my wife's grandparents were foster parents. So both of us came, grew up in a, in a little bit of this undercurrent in our families of um, of kids being raised by people they weren't born to. And that sounds kind of awkward, but it's kind of the easiest way to describe that. And so when we got married and we started talking about, you know, how, you know, how we wanted to grow our family, uh, both Kayla and I, um, you know, were, were pleasantly surprised that the other person came into the relationship wanting to adopt. And so um, we decided that we were um, going to adopt um, before we 
we try to have any kid, any bio kiddos, and um, we also decided we want to adopt from the foster care system. And so um, we got we got involved uh, in that, and um, four of our six kiddos are adopted from the foster care system here in Texas. And, and a little way into that journey, we're probably we um, right around our second adoption. Um, Karen Purvis um, was, you know, the interesting thing about Karen is that when the Connected Child came out, um, a lot of people, in particularly in Christian ministry and churches, were, re- were rejecting the work, right? And she, back then, was sort of like third-tier breakout speaker in a room that held 25 people when the book first came out. And then... Um, and so then a guy, a guy named Michael Monroe, uh, heard her speak at um, a CAFA summit out in Colorado Springs that year, and said, "Hey, you, there's something here." And so, for that sort of the genesis of Empower to Connect being created, and uh, when when the course was created, he contacted us and said, "Hey, uh, would you like to be sort of the pilot group of this course as we go through it?" And um, you know, as you know, thousands of people taking Empower to Connect every year now, and. Um, and when they hear this detail, they always kind of turn green and cringe. But back then, as group one, um, Karen actually came to class and, and just kind of helped us with through some stuff that nurture group with our kiddos. And so uh, born out of that, TCU was doing some some research um, and they wanted to do some research on neurotransmitters and would parenting, um, you know, doing the TBRI parenting um, change, um, could, could we measure a change in the, the neurotransmitters in the children? So they asked our uh, then three-year-old daughter to be part of the study, and uh, they asked us to parent her exclusively um, that way um, for a year. And so they tested everything, and as you might ex- expect, everything everything bad was too high, everything good was too low, cortisol was like off the charts. And so we parented her like that for a year. And when they retested it, I'm, I'm happy to say that everything was more in balance. They're just parenting with her with connection in mind. So that that was really, really great for us right at the beginning of our parenting journey um, to have that verified for us. Um, but we decided if we we're going to do this, we're going to have to keep each other honest. And so we talked about journaling and um and uh, so we started, well, the modern way to journal was to blog. And so we started a, a blog called One Big Happy Home. And we were just writing about our parenting. That was it. We weren't trying to promote it. We weren't pushing it. And somebody found some one of the articles. They liked it, asked if they could use it. Um, then um, it was sent to Dr. Purvis, who uh, liked it. And then we were asked to write for Empower to Connect. And that's kind of you know, the genesis into all of this was just being parents and trying to do right by our kiddos. And that connected us to, to um, you know, a fast, what's now a fast moving train. Uh, and, you know, and through all of that full, we've just had, uh, you know, a great privilege of, of meeting some fantastic people and, and being connected to them and having them mentor us and pour into us and educate us. But at the end of it all, um, the most valuable teacher and all of that is lived experience with the kids yeah no absolutely that wasn't, no and that it's, wasn't 60 seconds sorry that's okay i was thinking that about you know the 120 in but that's that's great because i'm glad you shared all that because i think it, it definitely gives us some context to be able to to hear more and, and to understand kind of where you're coming from the lens that you're uh, speaking through and and uh you know one of the things is one big happy home which is at one big happy home dot com. 
Um, you, you know, you talk about all the training you guys do. There's some testimonials from some of the people who've been on the show and will be like Jason Johnson. That's a pretty strong testimonial for those folks out there that know Jason, um, said, I think you guys are like the top experts on trauma informed children's ministry or something along those lines, which is pretty good, uh, pretty good, uh, endorsement there. And Pam Parrish, who was on the show, Kurt Thompson, who was recently on with the hundredth episode. So folks out there, you know, these people, you trust them. Um, and, you know, just seeing what you guys have written and your experience with Empowered to Connect over the years, I know you've learned a ton because just talking with you, you're, you know, you are a learner. You're someone who loves to share what you're learning with others as well, um, including on the on the website. And, and, you know, we were talking beforehand about a pretty cool story, but there's these these recipes and remedies on, um, on the website too. So if nothing else, folks, you can get a pretty, you know, some pretty solid smoothie recipes. You can get some good, <laughs> I think there's one on waffles. Um, and I think it said healthy ish waffles, if I'm not mistaken, you know, so there's, there's, you know, more than just this trauma informed care, you can get some real, you know, deeply important things on Saturday mornings from this website. So, you know, just what, what are you guys, you know, hoping to do through kind of one big happy home? What's your, what's your goal through that as well as the empowered parent podcast, which you didn't mention, but you guys also do a podcast called empowered parent, which has some amazing, amazing uh, information on it too. So what do you, what do you really hope your impact will be, um, through these different channels? So, um, you know, one of the things that, that we learned early on uh, in all of this was the difference between being safe and feeling safe. And um, I, I will confess somewhat uh, ashamedly <laughs> that, that that was a hard one for me to uh, to grasp initially. And so we really had this this idea that, OK, so th- there are these there are these behaviors we're seeing and um and and why are they not improving? Because you know, um, son, you're not in. This is kind of a thinking, right? So my son, son, you're not in harm's way anymore. You're in a place where you are loved. You're in a place where you are provided for. You get uh, three meals a day, snacks between meals. Um, you have your own bedroom. You have all of these things that we thought was great, and the why he should, you know, why he should just. Um, Really the anxiety that was in him and, and, and some of the other, you know, behaviors that were connected to the trauma he experienced early on in life, those were not going away. And then somebody explained to me, look, it doesn't matter if your child is safe. It only matters if they feel safe. And so once I grasped that concept, this is this is typically how we like to explain it um, to audiences when we get an opportunity to do some training. And that is um about 50%, according to a recent survey, about 50% of Americans are afraid of flying. Um, the number of Americans who are afraid of dying is low, uh, of driving, excuse me, is low single digits. But statistically, you're more likely to be killed in a car accident on the way to the airport than you are to be killed in an aircraft accident. Right. But none of that matters, right? Because you feel safe in the car. You don't feel safe in the aluminum tube with wings and engines. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So adults experience this all of the time. You know, I'm afraid of heights, Phil, and and it's always really kind of weird because we'll be up somewhere um, where where our heights be like, you know, the 39th floor of a building or something. And it will really bother me that it doesn't bother anybody else that we're up that high. (laughs) And the only difference is one of us feels safe 390 feet in the air and I don't. Right. So it's that felt safety uh, thing. So what we hope to to kind of achieve um, through this platform is, is making the world 
a place where where children can feel safe. And, you know, our work primarily has been uh, with adoption and foster care. But the truth of the matter is that trauma is not specific to adoption and foster care. You just have to look at sort of, you know, the ACEs study and realize that that most of us, uh, I'm going to try that again, that all of us have something that's going on. The difference is whether we're aware of it or not and whether we're working through it or not. And so, uh, you know, a lot of our work, you know, because here's kind of the, the, the trajectory, right? So TBRI is invented, which is awesome, but, you know, it was, it was primarily for professionals, right? And then Empower to Connect was invented, not invented, was, was put together. And that is, you know, to do all the TBRI stuff at home with the kids. And then that seems great too, and it is, except when you think, well, where do I kiss a, you know, our, our work is primarily with a Christian audience, so mm-hmm. ask this of a Christian family, where do your kids spend all their time? And the answers are home, school, and church. And so I'll say, well, where do they spend most of the time? And then they say, home. And I'm like, Noel, where do they spend most of their waking hours? And then they say, school. And if we're not trying to make every environment that our child operates in, uh, whether that be the therapist's office, the home, church, school, um, we're really not gaining the ground in terms of healing that we want to and maybe we think we are because having these uh, these environments where the child is treated differently, where they feel differently, where they're interacted with differently, ultimately uh, is is confusing and harmful to somebody who, who has a history of trauma, right? So that consistency really, really helps the child. We'll talk specifically about the children. The consistency really, really helps the child. So... Our, our thing is, look, if we can if we can do help get get the word out about trauma and give some people some practical strategies to proactively build that relationship with the child, because if we don't meet the children's physical needs and we don't meet the children's emotional needs, uh, we're not going to see the behaviors improve the way we want to see them and the way that ultimately the child needs them so that so that life can can start heading in a positive direction. So. Um, in a nutshell, trying to create these environments of felt safety in, in any uh, realm that we can. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I, and I think that the one of the things you say on the uh, on your website is that, uh, you know, you believe that empathy and compassion are foundational to reaching hurting people. Yeah. And you guys have spent years helping people think differently about the at-risk population of children. And that part talking about empathy and compassion are foundational to reaching hurting people. I know there's some people out there and, you know, I was one of these people who says, well, I'm not really empathetic. You know, that's just not how I'm wired. Um, Strength finders proved that when I took it and said I was like 33 out of 34 was empathy. But then I come to learn that empathy um, is really learned behavior. And yeah. it's... Uh, you know, something that we can all work on. And, you know, and you know, you saying, yeah, I obviously agree with that. And you know that, how are you, how do you take someone, you know, like myself and, and really say, you know what, here's some ways that you can be empathetic and you can really practice this empathy and compassion that is absolutely necessary if you're going to be working and, and to be able to create these, you know, safe places and this, 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 uh, you know, feeling of safety you're going to really need to be able to study these people and really dive into that where they are. How do you encourage people to do that if they're not necessarily, you know, in their mind, quote, wired that way? Yeah. So um, that's, that's a great question. And, um, you know, we came because a lot of what we've, um, you know, you talked about the empowered parent podcast a little bit ago, Mm -hmm. you know, 
a little, you know, that ties in here in a second. But, but our sort of idea behind that was was never to um, to be anything more than just three people who um, who are on this journey together, just really talking about our successes and our failures, mostly about our failures, but in those failures, talking about how we didn't give up. Mm-hmm. and some of the resources that we were equipped with and how we actually use those in relationship with our children. And so kind of the idea behind the podcast is the three of us are just talking about our successes and failures as parents. Uh, and we're just inviting you to listen if you want to and, and, and feel like you're sitting at the table with us. Right. And one of the things that we learned along the way, and because, you know, we, we try to be sort of vulnerable about ourselves and, and transparent with where we're from and and, and I'll tell you, Kayla and I came to foster care and adoption um, with this mentality that, um, with with tons of sympathy for the kids. But but I but I can remember um, the first time one of those kiddos peed on the wall. Phil, mm-hmm. sympathy didn't help me or him in that moment. Right. Um, and so, you know, sympathy. And, and so, um, you and I talked a little bit ago um, before we started recording about how you know we we both. Are big believers in words have meanings. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just, they just, and, and sometimes we co-opt things culturally. But, but I love going actually to the the, dif, the dictionary and reading definitions of words. And the definition of compassion uh, is is roughly this: a feeling of sympathy that becomes a strong desire to alleviate another person's suffering. And that strong, that sympathy becoming a, a strong desire is 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 empathy right it's it's where i go like okay i don't get it but i choose to see it from your perspective mm. I, I i i can't relate but i'm trying to walk in your shoes on this one because unless we actually get that place that place of empathy we're not, ultimately not really going to be people of compassion and compassion is a verb right it is an actual act of alleviating another person's suffering and so this idea is communicated in the Gospels, right? Jesus sees the crowd and he has compassion on them. So he teaches them, he feeds them, he heals mm-hmm. them. One of my favorites, though, is, um, right, so there, 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 are three famous, there are three resurrection accounts in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus and Lazarus are the two most famous. But there's a third one that people don't speak, at least people I know don't speak about as much. And that's um, this, this funeral in the town of Nain where this widow uh, is burying her son. And so if you think culturally about that part of the world in the first century, being a widow without any uh, male children was really, really a hard place to be. And so um, the Bible says that Jesus sees the woman and he has compassion on her. Mm. So he gives her son back to her. Mm-hmm. And so um, the compassion is always a verb. It's always active. But unless you can hurt for or choose to hurt for somebody else without having experienced it yourself, I think ultimately compassion is going to be hard. So one of the ways we do that um, is, you know, in, in the connected child, there are these risk factors that make a hard place, right? Um, prenatal stress and harm, difficult labor and delivery, early medical trauma, abuse, neglect, and then other kind, all other kinds of trauma. And so when we talk through that list with people, um, the preamble to that is like, don't don't see your child in this list, whether it's your child that you are the parent of or the child that you're working with at church. See yourself in the list. Mm-hmm. And then people are going, oh, yeah, my mom did say that she was on bed rest for three months in her pregnancy when uh, the, that resulted in my birth. And uh, 
And all of a sudden we start seeing ourselves and then, hey, you know, if you were hospitalized and had surgery as a child, or you spent time in the NICU and these are the, and this is how that impacted you. And because of that, how that's impacted you, this is how it informs your behavior. And all of a sudden, um, I remember the first time we did that, we just got a lot of feedback from the people in the audience that day saying, gosh, that just really made it, made it real for me. Mm. And, and, and I think that's how we've tried to engender this empathy in people is, is to, is to kind of, you know, bait and switch a bit and say, look, I don't want you to think about your children now, primarily. I want the primary person you're thinking about now to be you. And then when you see yourself in three or four of those risk factors, um, you're now connected with your child's history because um, I'm, I'm a big believer of, and until the day I die, I will, I will preach this message that if you really want to be the agent of healing in your child's life, you have to understand their history mm. and come to terms with your past. Mm. Because if you're not willing to come to terms with your past, your hurts and hangups are actually going to be the things that ultimately become the walls between you and your children. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that parenting isn't about building walls. It's about building bridges, yeah. particularly when we're welcoming children from hard places into our home. So. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, you know, something I'm even thinking in the context of, you know, parenting biological kids as well, you know, right. I mean, all of these have some application and when it comes to empathy to empathy is not something that's just limited to this area either. Right. It's something we can take into all of our relationships. And, you know, we talk about studying others so that we can actually know how to really communicate, how we can really love. Yep. Um, you know, the quote that I heard recently that you know, love is choosing the highest good for someone else. Yeah. You know, and you can't choose that without knowing them and diving into their life and studying who they are and what their dreams and hopes and and struggles and fears are. Right. So I think that's what you're talking about here. Am I right? Am I right there? Yeah, because because ultimately um, we can't get to where we want to go if we don't know where we're coming from. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, so the foundational stuff is so important. And sometimes. Um, it's almost, and, and I don't mean to this to sound the way it is, but I don't know how to say this um, this any better than this, Phil. But but sometimes it's almost easy um, to just focus. It, it's easier to focus on the child, right? Because we're like, no, this 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 person, this little person has had such a hard start to life, and I need to be investing in them and pouring into them and making sure that we that that trajectory changes and that's all in good well and good and noble but if we're doing that at the expense of our own personal healing and uh, it's not ultimately it impacts our relationship with our child because if we're not growing uh, then we say stuff like they're just pushing my buttons well in the moment you say they're pushing my buttons you have to recognize that they are pushing my buttons right and and, and, it, and it's really your responsibility to make that target smaller. And the only way you can do that is, um, it, and, and you know what? Look, there's still sadly in 2018 a negative stigma in a lot of circles around therapy. But I've been to six counselors in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my wife and I spent a few months seeing a, uh, a marriage counselor the second half of last year. Um, because we have come to recognize that, um, you know, you'll take your car in for a tune-up, but we don't really do the work to, to do like, you know, tune-ups and regular maintenance on our relationships. And so we're big believers in that. Um, we probably moving forward as a result of, of learning that last year, 
we'll probably, you know, once a year schedule a few sessions um, with, with the marriage therapist because it was just really great to kind of, you know, change the oil and, and spark plugs on, on our relationship. Uh, and we learned some things about each other. Uh, we learned some things about relating to each other that have just been so, uh, so amazing um, for us. And so, again, you know, I'll say this probably 10 times in our time together today, Phil, that I'm a really big proponent of of people um, diving um, into into their, their their own histories. And sometimes we get resistance to that idea because people are saying, well, then aren't you just excusing your kid's behavior? And I say, no, what you're doing is you're, 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 you're on a journey of personal healing, which makes you better able to grow in healthy relationship with, with your child. And, and what an amazing thing to model for our children that we're willing to do the work uh, necessary to, to, to see healing in our, in our lives as well. Right. Well, something that's a little bit related to this. I mean, it's all related to this. They're all related to each other. But in, in, a, in a recent talk, you talked about you know, kind of the importance of not creating a vacuum uh, by removing a child's coping mechanism without replacing it with something better. And we hear about this in, you know, The Power of Habit is, is a great book Charles Duhigg wrote um, a couple, you know, a few years ago, talking about this as well, that, you know, you don't just say, I'm going to stop something without replacing it with something better. Yeah. Can you kind of flesh out that concept for our audience and just share an example of what that might look like in practice? Okay, so um, this is an important concept for, for adoptive and foster parents primarily, but as you said, um, you know, one of my one of my bio kiddos hits like four of the six risk factors. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so it's not only specific to adoption foster care, but some of the examples are easier in adoption foster care, right? So, um, like uh, like a child that hasn't um, had had consistent access to food, right? I mean, like neglect uh, with food is involved is really really difficult um, because you'll see the stealing, you'll see the hoarding, you'll see the gorging, you'll see a lot of a lot of behaviors. <clears throat> but what we need to recognize is that's not poor behavior in the child; that's survival behavior in the child. And so if we're going to um, say, look, you can't, you know, if we're, because I know people who like put a lock on the pantry and on the fridge because the, because the child's stealing food, but that's just taking away their survival mechanism without replacing it with something that actually helps them. Mm. So this, this is true for one of our, our kids in our house. So um, what we do in our home uh, is obviously we feed them breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And every two hours, there's a healthy snack in our house. Uh, my wife, who is at home with the kiddos during the day, will actually set a timer. Um, you know, whatever. If you're, a, you know, an Amazon or a Google person, you've got your handy dandy little device, and and we just do Alexa, set a timer for two hours. And when the timer goes off, the children know it's time for a snack. Uh, we also do this thing called a yes jar, jar, and there's an explanation of it on the website, where it's full of things that Kayla will stock, and anytime the children ask for something from it. We say yes. And so there's little, you know, fidgets and toys and um, snacks and actual, you know, suckers and, and, and bubble gum in there, plus little um, little popsicle sticks that have fruit or vegetable written on it. And um, the only the only rule surrounding the yes jar in our home is if that um, the meal uh, that you're about to eat is is being served. Uh, and by that mean, you know, we have eight people at the house full, so it's like dinner service. It's like a catered dinner every oh, time. Oh yeah, right? I get it. 
we cook, we stack out the eight plates, we, 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 we dish up on them, and then I yell, service, and <laughs> kids come and, and take plates to the dining room. And so um, if we started the, pay, the plating process, the yes jar is closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's about the only rule we have about it because we feel like, okay, so here is the survival mechanism, the need for, for, for food. Uh, so, let's take, so let's turn that into a positive and say, look, we provide for you um, – three meals a day, snacks every two hours, and anytime you want something. Uh, we also, you know, buy our children, you know, nicer water bottles so they will keep up with them and they keep them with them. And so they're, mm-hmm. they're constantly hydrating. Uh, you know, we'll, we just have to provide mechanisms to help our children cope. Plus, you know, with the food thing, I like, I like that example because it's not only is it providing a mechanism for the child to cope, but you're also building trust into that relational bank, right? And so um, I don't want you, you, anybody to hear me say that if you will just do this for six months, all your problems will be solved. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you that six, six, if we're doing this for 60 years, there is a remarkable reduction in the, uh, in the levels of the anxiety surrounding food in our home. And so that to me is kind of the first example I always think of because it's so real at our house that the, the food thing, their behavior connected to the food is a survival mechanism. Uh, because it's a learned behavior from their, their histories. And what we need to do is we need to just be sad about that uh, and mourn that with our children and for our children and then give them something positive to help them cope. Right. You know, and that's, that's I think, so important in so much, so many of our lives, right? You know, to really study our past and see how it was, how it has informed our present and potentially could inform our future, but not sit in victimhood and say, well, I guess I can't do anything about it, but to say, no, we can replace this with a better story, right? Yes. What does that look like? And, uh, you know, I think that's what you're talking about there. Um, well, could you, can I just riff off of that just a absolutely, second? Absolutely, of course. Because this idea of replacing it with a better story um, is so, so important. Um, we did an episode on lying uh, about a year or so ago, and um, it's probably one of the more controversial topics we've ever tackled, which almost sounds weird to me hearing me say that. But people have a lot of strong opinions on lying, and people, particularly in the church, because if we were raised in a Christian home, um, we were we heard the phrase "Don't lie to me, don't lie to me." You know, always tell the truth, don't lie to me. Which I'm a big proponent of always telling the truth, right. um, and, and so I don't want people to mishear that. But but what we've come to understand over the years. Uh, when our children lie to us is number one, um, and you know, and again, when we address this in front of a room full of people, I'd say if you so number the number one reason people lie, uh, in my opinion, is they want to willfully deceive somebody. Mm-hmm. And then I um, I ask, how many of you have never willfully deceived anybody, and nobody raises their hand, mm-hmm. right? So we've now already shifted how you think about lying, because because again. I've made it personal for you. It's not about your kid anymore. And so now we can start building that empathy. But the second reason people lie is because they are merely recounting it the way they remembered it. And my favorite example of that is you'll hear a song on the radio. It's really catchy. And then the next day you'll hear the same song on the radio and you'll try to sing along. And you'll very, um, you know, this puzzled look on your face because you're wondering why they why they released two versions with different lyrics. Hmm. Right. Because you recall the lyrics right. the way you remember them. And that's what happens with our kids a lot. And they're just recalling. They're not trying to deceive us. They're just recalling stuff the way they remembered it. And we just crack down on them pretty harshly. But the third one is the one that's the most troubling for me is because 
they are retelling the story the way they wished it had happened. Mm. Because they have these little people, and if this doesn't just make your eyes work with tears, and then, and then I don't know if I can, then I should probably find a way to explain it better. But these little people, some of them have such horrible things in their history, Phil, that their mind, which one of the functions of your mind is to protect yourself, mm -hmm. their function, their mind has now created memories to replace the horrible ones they have. And so they are literally recounting it the way their mind remembers it, because the truth of the matter in some cases is so tragic that these, these children's minds won't allow them to recall it the way it actually happened as a mechanism for protection. And before I understood that, I just thought my kid was lying to me all the time. But that was, but, but just understanding that thing, when that was taught to me, it moved me from, oh my gosh, why does my kid lie to me all the time to, oh my gosh, my kid's mind as a method, as a way of protecting him has created stories. These are not lies. These are fairy tales that he has come to believe right. because it's just easier this way. Yep. And that changed, that changed our whole approach to lying in our parenting to this, that one little thing. Wow. Yeah. We'll, uh, we will, uh, put a link to that episode as well on the, on the, show notes, which brings a great point that the good news about this folks, like all these things, as with most interviews, I could talk to Ryan for hours on end about all these things, but the nice and the, the great thing about this interview in particular is you can go over to the empowered parent podcast and get so much more goodness from Ryan and Kayla and, and just, uh, and tell me your, your host name as well. What's, what's his name? So I forget. Chris, Chris Turner. Yeah. Chris Turner as well. And, and, uh, just so much, so much good stuff over there. So definitely go check that out and we'll have all the, we'll have the link to that episode on lying as well as, you know, just obviously a link to the, to the podcast in general, but you can go check it out on, uh, iTunes as well and wherever else you get your podcasts. So, um, as we're coming kind of down to the, the last few questions here, um, one of them is, you know, I think it, it may be something we've already talked about, but you know, we, we, there's so many issues we're facing in orphan care today and, and, you know, we talk on this show so often of how we can address them together, how we can collaborate to really work to help each other with each other's, you know, issues that we have. But what's kind of one issue that, that you think um, is really important but, but too often overlooked in, um, in our work in orphan care? Wow. Um, <clears throat> that is probably, uh, for me, the, the most difficult question <laughs> you've asked so far. Uh, today, Phil, I, you know, one of the things that I think um, is a little condemning is when I have people who are not connected to Christian ministry, who whether that be churches or parachurch organizations, um, and way they ask me this question pretty early on in our discussion: Why don't Christian? Why, why don't why don't, why don't churches and ministries get along better? Hmm. And, and I think. Um, I think it's gotten better over the years. Uh, I think, you know, you and I, we just saw each other at KFA Summit, um, you know, a month or so ago. And, um, you know, there, there is this idea now that if we, we will cooperate more and compete less, um, that we'll actually, you know, do more good that way. Because the truth of the matter is there are a lot of hurting people and families and then come, come, one organization competing with another doesn't do any good because no single organization is going to reach everybody. 
right? And so I think that there's a greater sense of cooperation, there's, there's a greater idea that we're in this together. Um, I was I was born in South Africa, so I get to claim all ancient African proverbs mm, and share them. Nice. And there's one that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Right. And, and I think that just creating a greater spirit of cooperation uh, in ministry is probably valuable. Um, you know, people might not know this about you, but but for about a year now, you've tried to create sort of an association of, of Christian orphan care podcasts and kind of be, be collaborative uh, and, and supportive of each other. Um, and, and, and it's a great idea and, and we need to do it. And I know that I haven't done my part to keep up to speed with your idea though, but that's a good example for me, Phil, that look, you know, I can have my podcast, you can have your podcast, the Berries can have their podcast. Uh, but if all of us were working together, we would cover more ears. And so, right. um, I think to me, moving forward, it's certainly something that, that, that my wife and I are personally and organizationally um, very, very interested in doing is this idea of, of, you know, we can go further if we do it together. Absolutely. Now, that's something I, you know, those out there listening, you know, I talk about it regularly. I, I fully agree with this. And I think recently on the episode with Rick Morton, where I was talking about that, he asked me a similar question to what I just asked you. And that was my answer as well. You know, we needed to do that more together. And I think you and I, and we joked about it at the beginning, but just the, our, our mutual love for football or as Americans know it, soccer, um, you know, is something that goes to it. Cause you see a team when a team is working together on a soccer pitch and they are running like a well-oiled machine, it's pretty amazing to watch. But when you see one guy trying to do it on his own, nothing really happens. And they typically right. lose um, unless they're playing a really, really bad team. But we're not playing a really, really bad team here. We're playing a ridiculously difficult, um, you know, issue here that, that is so multifaceted and complex. We absolutely need each other. So I'm so glad that you you said that. Um, well, and, so, you know, we do we do need to do the the um, how, how, how soccer explains orphan care. Yes. Podcast. Uh, because as you were talking, talking there, um, I, had, I spent, um, I've spent most of my adult life as a soccer coach, uh, including eight years as a varsity coach. And I, and I will tell you that the times that we had success against opponents who were much better than we were is when we were organized and we stuck to the plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I mean? And so I think there's, there's a part of sort of being in this together and being organized and being strategic and being intentional um, that leads to greater success than just, you know, everybody just trying to be the hero by themselves, which, which is ultimately part of the problem why people say, well, why doesn't Brazil win every World Cup? Because most of the time they bring 11 great players with yep. them, yep. but they very rarely bring, bring one great team. Yep. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, that we, we do need to do that. I, I think it will be a series. I don't think it's just going to be one podcast either. I think we need to do it. I agree. Maybe a I mean, new podcast, in fact, that we dude, could I'm get. sure we could find. We can find some other people in, in the orphan care movement that are on board with Joga Benito. Absolutely. You know, and, and I, I got to tell you, there's a new book coming out, Peter Greer, called Rooting for Rivals. And I haven't even read it yet. It's, it's, it's actually in the mail coming to me right now. I'm honored and privileged to be on the uh, launch team for that. And uh, I can't wait to read it because I have a feeling it's going to confirm all of these things that we're talking about here. And then you folks out there can read it talking about it. 
Let's not just talk about it, though. We got to be doing it. We got to be actually rooting for each other because we're on the same team. I mean, if you're sitting here right. saying, I want to love, figure out how we can love orphan and vulnerable children around the world better. Um, we're on the same team. We are doing that, especially in gospel driven excellence. What does that look like? You know, we, we need to and like, But you like you said, and I think it's one of the critical parts of it. We need to be um, on the same page. We need to have a common strategy. We need to have goals that we talk about together, that we actually work together, come together in rooms and not just hang out and talk. But we just, you know, which is always fun. We need to do that, too, because we need to trust each other. And I, I'll bet with every one of those teams that were the most successful. You had a group of girls or boys that loved each other and cared about each other and wanted each other to flourish out there individually and corporately. And it wasn't about, you know, any individual like being the best. It was about how can we be to get the best together as a team? You know, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong there, but I imagine that was the case. I know that's how it's no, been I, with me coaching. No, I think that, that I, I, I agree with everything you said and would add one thing. It was also a group of kids that trusted each other. Right. You, you all, they always felt like the other, the person next to them had their back. And if they messed up, they would bail them out. And if they put the ball into space, that person would be in the space. And um, a, a, a well-drilled team that loves, trusts, and honors each other um, is just is just an amazing, amazing, um, an amazing thing. Yeah. You know. Um, you mentioned Peter Greer, and I would be remiss to say that that his uh, book, *The Spiritual Danger of Doing Good*, yep. um, was not um, was not life changing for me. It just gave me an insanely great perspective on on on, on this work that we do. Um, and I never forget. There's a story in there about when these blankets arrive at the refugee camp, but they but they don't they're not allowed to give them out because CNN will only be here tomorrow. Hmm. Um, Oh, they will always, always stick with me. And, and it's been really, really uh, influential in my thinking and has really helped me keep the main thing the main thing. Um, you know, um, we're, we, we've done a lot of training with churches and their children's ministry staff over the years. Uh, we did one recently at Northway um, Christian Community in Pittsburgh last month. And at that, at that, um, at that training, we actually videoed it. Um, and we're editing that video and, you know, it's, it's fun. I love to travel. You, you know, you're a traveler, you, you, you get this. It's fun to go places, meet new people. I love going to grocery stores in different parts of the U S because, um, you know, the shelves, it's like being in another country because mm -hmm. all the, most of the half the brands are different. Right. Um, like you go to California, there are none of the milk brands yep. in California grocery stores that we have here in Texas, right? And so I love traveling and doing those things, but but we're never going to cover as much of the earth that needs to be covered if we have to go somewhere. So we're taking these resources. We're going to build some online trainings. We're going to make some of these things available uh, so that people can uh, hopefully, um, hopefully we can just turn our churches and our homes and our schools into places where children are understood, where they are loved, where they get the nurture and the structure they need. Kids need both. Uh, but I really feel like there's a, there's a tie to turning a little bit culturally. You know, Oprah did uh, interview Dan Allender on 60 Minutes, and they talked a lot about trauma and its impacts. And and I feel like you know this this thing we're involved in uh, is not at critical mass, but we're getting to a tipping point where enough people now see the value of understanding trauma and its impacts and how it informs people's behaviors. Absolutely. Well, you know, and, and I, I do have to say I'd be remiss without talking about the fact that Peter Greer also is a soccer player. So that that's something there. But um, 
And also a friend of yours. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we haven't played soccer together, but hopefully we'll have that day come, and uh, you know we'll see what happens. I don't, it might not be pretty because <laughs> we're both getting older and older. We're not getting any younger, but we'll we'll see. We'll see what happens there. Um, so last couple questions we ask everybody. You, we've talked about several books and resources here, but what you know what have you read, watched, or listened to recently that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? Okay, um, yeah. So um, my my answer to that. Um, generally surprises people. It's a book by Carol Dweck called Mindset. Hmm. Um, and uh, Dr. Dweck did, you know, used to be at Columbia, um, either is at Stanford or was at Stanford, may have retired recently since the publishing of the book. But but she really talks about it. And they did their research with, uh, you know, um, preschool kids, elementary, middle school, high school undergraduate, graduate, and professionals in the workplace and, and, and what they hypothesize held across all of those. And that is that we either have a fixed mindset or we have a growth mindset. And I think this is really, really important because people with growth mindsets tend to succeed. But our kiddos, because of their compromised belief systems, um, tend to have fixed mindsets. And, um, and just drew, you know, the Bible talked about the renewing of your mind. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think this is a really, really great tool for us to consider that to, to confirm that our minds do need to be renewed and to give us some ideas on how to do that. So mindset by Carol Dweck, um, is just a fantastic book. Uh, also, um, the body keeps the score by Bessel van der Kolk. Um, those are, those are the, the two books that, that I read most recently. And, um, because I, I, I love him so much personally and I just love his work so much. I actually cracked open my copy of, um, anatomy of the soul by Kurt Thompson mm -hmm. last week. And I'm reading that's, I'm going to reread it this summer because it's just so, it's so rich and it's so deep and, and Kurt's, I mean, you know, Kurt, right. And he's just yeah. such a thought, thoughtful man and, and one of the kindest people I've ever met and um, just absolutely love him dearly and what he's all about and really, you know, thought of myself, I really want his thoughts influencing my thoughts yeah. this summer. And so, so those, those are, the, those are the, the two most recent and the one on the current reading list, um, Mindset by Carol Dweck, um, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, and um, also um, Anatomy of the Soul by Kurt Thompson. And, and if people go to our website and go to the, the Work With Us section, um, those books are hyperlinked there to Amazon because these are the books that we use when we develop these trainings. And so um, you can find them there along with some others. Yeah, no, absolutely. We'll, we will definitely have that link. And uh, I, yeah, I've been blown away by the, I, I, I look forward to getting to know Kurt better because just the interview I was able to do with him and the little I've gotten to know him, I've been so so encouraged uh by him so um speaking of people that have impacted us what, what what kind of person comes to your mind when you think about who has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence um you know the obvious answer there is is uh, karen purvis and david cross um you know n none of this would have come into our lives had we not encountered the connected child um, again, also uh, Tina Payne Bryson and uh, Dan Siegel. Mm -hmm. Dan wrote a bunch of books by himself. Uh, Tina and Dan wrote uh, three books together. Uh, the Whole Brain Child is transformative because it's not just 
we're not just talking about the at-risk population, we're just talking about kids in general. And right. so um, that has been really helpful um, because sometimes adoption and foster care, those are barriers to entry in some circles that we that we work in now. But a lot, some of our stuff's based on that. Um, I really love the whole brain child because it takes a lot of complicated neuro ideas and puts them into language that people like 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 I can understand. Right. But not only just understand that I can understand it, but understand it at a level that I can ex- we can recommunicate it, which is I think is really really the the beauty of the Siegel and Bryson uh, partnership. Um, I'd read anything Dan you know Dan Siegel, just such a brilliant guy, and 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 he's you know, explanation of attachment styles uh, is is the thing that helped me understand attachment. Uh, because again, just an insanely brilliant individual who who I have to concentrate really hard with, the hard to finish a sentence with, but really informed. So, um, you know, Cross and Purvis, Siegel and Bison, and then and then um, Kurt Thompson. Again, just, you know, there's a lot of this sort of connecting to your own personal story, a lot of personal healing that has to happen. Right. Um, those are probably uh, probably the, the people that come to mind first. Uh, I also say some of Brene Brown's book has really helped me in my understanding of relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, Derek Greatly was transformative in our marriage. Uh, so we do always recommend Daring Greatly to folks because if you are a couple that is parenting, um, then making sure that you're healthy and not, not you know, as Andy Stanley said recently in a sermon, that you're not right at each other, but you're right with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, Daring Greatly really helped us in our marriage be, be um, so much more on the same page. We were, we were, we were mostly, you know, not just in the same book, but in the same chapter. But but that was really influential in helping us get on the same page as parents. Yeah. So, so those would be the ones that come to mind. Yeah, absolutely. We've got lots of resources, folks. We've, we've kind of loaded you today and, and uh, you know, hopefully that will encourage you to get to learn more as we talk about doing so often on this. Well, thanks. So, thanks so much, Ryan. And, uh, you know, I, I just, as always, really enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to continuing it really soon. Well, thanks for having me, me on, Phil, and for all you do to raise awareness and connect people with, with resources and organizations, um, you know, that are, that are doing the work in the trenches there and equipping parents. And, and, uh, I remember the first time I met you, you were wearing an English soccer Jersey, um, hmm. in Orlando. I don't know. You probably don't remember that. I remember but, it. I remember but, it. But, but the fact that you were walking around with, with premier league teams on, um, connected us, um, before I knew a single thing about what you did. And so uh, relationships are kind of funny like that, that if we can find some common ground, yep. the rest of it almost beca- becomes a little easier than it might have been. So Absolutely. Well, all right. Thanks bro. for having me on. Yep, absolutely. Bye. Well, thanks again, Ryan, for uh, being a part of the show, being a part of the conversation, for sharing your wisdom with us, um, and really just for our friendship. You know, I I, uh, I say that a lot on this show, and but I but I mean it. You know, these these people are friends. They are people who I've learned um, to respect in so many different ways, and it's something I really hope you folks out there do as well with the people that you're working with, the, the people that you um, really are. You know, at, at at some level, I mean, hopefully at a at a at a big level, you know. You are doing life with the people that you're doing this work with. And so, you know, I, I don't take it lightly and I don't, uh, you know, I'm not just saying it when I say these people are my friends. And, 
And I also am not kidding around, you know, and I, I imagine you were super psyched, Karen, when you heard that we're thinking about starting a podcast on soccer and what it might be able to teach us. How, were you super excited about that? Yes, I I really thought I might have gotten a little shout out from you, you know, because um, you guys may not know, like I, I, I'm a soccer player, too. I grew up eating breathing, sleeping soccer day in and day out. It's a huge part of my story. So yeah, anything about soccer, I'm tracking with you. There's definitely massive life lessons um, with any team sport, but particularly soccer. So yes. So stay tuned on that folks, because it, it actually may, it, it may come to fruition sooner than uh, later. So anyway, with that, you know, I don't know how we can get any better than that, but I, I think we can try. So what, what else from that interview uh, really stuck out to you. Yeah, this this is just a great interview. We always have great interviews. I, I say that phrase often, but for you guys that listen regularly, you know this is my jam. It's my um, it's what I do day in and day out. Um, I am a TBRI trained licensed clinical psychologist. I am all about trauma informed care. One of the things um, that I really just probably raised my hands and did a massive like fist pump in the air when Ryan said this um, was when he was talking about the importance that you know, trauma isn't just for kids who come from hard places related to foster care and adoption. Trauma can happen in all of our lives. It's not just capital T trauma. It can be lowercase t trauma. It can be both. And what what I mean by that is, you know, families like like mine who've moved around so often due to being in the ministry, um, it doesn't have to be just foster care and adoption. Parenting from a connection-based positive parenting strategy is where it's at. And it's not just parenting, it's providing care for kids or for teens. And I love what Ryan is doing. I love what they're doing as they are uh, making their trainings even more available for churches. It's where it's at for churches, for schools. Um, it's, It's really great. You know, there were so many things I want to talk about with you about this interview, and we unfortunately aren't going to be able to do it all. Maybe we'll have another uh, episode where I just ask you questions about what Ryan talked about. Maybe we'll do that. I don't know, because I have like more than an interview here on my notes about what to ask you about him. But um, one of the things he talked about, which is something that I've been talking about a lot on the show, because it's something that I'm working on tremendously in, in my life. And that's really the idea of empathy and compassion. And as he said, they're foundational to reaching hurting people. You know, can you just add any additional thoughts on how we can encourage people to improve on these things in their lives? Yeah, you know, it's one of the main things that I do in my office. Um, a lot of times when people hear that I work with kids and teenagers, that they just think I'm in my office all day with kids and teenagers, but the majority of my work is actually with adults. It's with parents, it's with caregivers. And in that, of helping parents to understand their stories, helping parents to see themselves, I think that's the language that Ryan used. We can give so many examples and we can talk about trauma and we can talk about risk factors, but when we allow and we help to 
um, foster an environment where parents and caregivers can see themselves in pieces of these stories and to understand that, oh, okay, that that actually sounds a little bit like my story or, oh, that that's me. I've actually told a lie in my life. Oh, I've, I've actually manipulated a situation to get something that I've wanted. Or, you know what, I've actually been really tired and really hungry at the same time. And I guarantee that none of my additional five members in my family wanted to be anywhere around me. So when we can help to think about what is going on in someone's life as a parent, when I can chase the why, when I can figure out what's going on in my kid's life, is he hungry? Is he tired? Is he lonely? When, when I can do that, I can take even a couple of seconds. It usually helps to increase my compassion and my empathy, and it helps my brain to actually calm down too. It helps me to be able to interact with him in a positive and connection-based moment. Now, that doesn't mean he gets everything he wants, but it means that I am interacting in a way with him that's going to help calm his brain down so that he can learn how to meet his own needs or solve that problem differently. Most of the time with this idea of empathy and compassion, and it's not just working with orphaned and vulnerable children. I'm Mm -hmm. telling you, I tell this to people all the time. It's interacting with your friends. It's interacting with your spouse. It's being a part of a staff. It's being in um, on a conference call. It's, It's everyday interactions that we can use these phenomenal relational skills of having empathy and compassion. Yeah, definitely. No, I fully agree with that. And it's something And you got I, me started. You know, I can talk for hours about all this stuff. So I know. If you ask me a question, I'm going to answer with like huge paragraphs. And that's good. That's good because we, you know, we haven't had a, you know, I forget what we even called it. Deep thoughts with Karen or whatever it ah, was. That's right. Um, I, I know it wasn't deep thoughts. Maybe we should call it that. We'd have <laughs> the, probably a lot better, uh, you know, stats on it if we call it deep <laughs> thoughts with Karen. But, uh, that bring us back. Remember Deep Thoughts with Jack Handy back at Saturday Night Live? Yeah, I think it probably came to mind. Anyone that's like probably over 35, probably that's what you thought about. So um, if you're under 35, you have no idea what you're talking about. And I I'm, I just did you a huge favor. Go back, go online, <laughs> go to YouTube, whatever, and look them up. You, you will laugh for hours. Um, and then you'll tell all your friends about them. So... Um, you know, the other, the other thing that, uh, he talked about that really kind of stuck out to me, cause I've had this too. And he talked about irrational thoughts and fears and really the felt safety concept. Right. I remember when I had, um, it was actually right after I got, uh, engaged to my amazing wife and, <laughs> um, we were in Hawaii and I all of a sudden developed this totally irrational fear of flying and, I, every time I'd see a plane, I'd get shakes. And it's a bad thing when you live in Hawaii and you have a fear of flying when your entire family lives on the mainland because there's only one way to get there unless you take a really long boat ride. So um, it was something I had to overcome, but it was still something that I knew it was irrational. I kept telling myself this is totally irrational, and yet it still was there, right? And so he talked about that a lot. And can you can you kind of expand on that a little bit on what he said? Yeah, you know, Anyone that uh, works with orphaned or vulnerable children, anyone that's heard of the Connected Child or TBRI, Empowered to Connect, Dr. Karen Purvis, Dr. David Cross, this idea of felt safety is probably one of the key essentials. And it's so relevant. It's so relevant because it, it doesn't make sense a lot of times. It doesn't make sense, especially to parents who are parenting for the first time or parents who have 
um, what I like to say is quote unquote, successfully raised children by birth. And so if you heard me, that really includes probably all parents. So either parents who've never parented or parents who've successfully raised children by birth. And so what happens is that when kids have experienced trauma, abuse, and neglect, when kids have been in an unsafe environment, their brain literally wires and fires differently. It fires and then it wires. And so what happens is even though from a logical perspective and a reality-based perspective, a child is safe, even though he may be sitting in your living room with a bowl of popcorn watching his favorite movie, there is literally some physiological responses that can still happen if that child does not feel safe. And so one of the ways I like to explain it when I'm helping parents and caregivers to understand is that our kids have to understand beyond a shadow of a doubt that our words are true and that our actions are true. And that has to be over and over again. It has to be consistent. It doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. There's no perfect parent. But what it means is that our kids have to know that our words are true in the good stuff and in the not so good stuff. And our words are going to be true and consistent and our actions are going to back up those words. And so if I tell my son, hey, you know, sweetie, if if you don't finish your spelling homework, we don't get to have ice cream tonight. Even if everyone else is having ice cream and even if he doesn't finish his spelling, but I really want him to have it, I I need to make sure my word stays the same Mm -hmm. so that he understands, oh, mommy's words are true and the not so good stuff, which means I don't get my ice cream and mommy's words are true when I say, babe, I love you. I'm always going to be your mom. And so that idea of felt safety for most of us, it doesn't make sense, but it is true. And unfortunately, it sticks for a really long time. And Ryan talked about this because a lot of times our kids, um, the way that they've experienced life, it just sticks. It sticks because it's been reinforced for so long. And the way that they work through problems and the way that they think and the way that their body feels and their brain thinks through things it sticks. And so we've got to undo that process of our kiddos not feeling safe. And he talked about some of the great strategies, um, which is one of the things I wanted to mention too, which is, um, he talked about this idea of replacement behaviors. We can't just take something away. We can't just extinguish a behavior as a parent. We have to provide a child with an a helpful or a healthier solution. So I can't just get my kid to stop hiding Cheerios under his bed. I have to help him to understand how can I solve that problem differently? Right. What's a, what's a better option? What's a better response? Right. Right. Exactly. And and it's, it's teaching, it's teaching our Mm -hmm. kiddos. And I think that's one of the biggest kind of roadblocks I know that I come to in my office, especially in the South here, kind of the hub of evangelical Christianity is that I think that as parents, a lot of times we get stuck in the obey part. We want our children to obey. And a lot of parents have the saying to delay is to disobey. But really, like I have a big like X mark when I hold my hands up, like, no, 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 that's that's not it. And so let's give our kids a minute to think through to think about different options to solve their problem differently and let's help them and let's teach them get to that solution in a different way. Yeah, there's so many things that come to mind, but a strange one came to my mind that I want to throw out there to you because it may be that if it came to my mind, it may have come to somebody else's somewhere else in the world. If not, you know, this will just be something that 
will make you think of American Idol. But is the idea that you're talking about with, you know, the, when you, you know, you discipline and when you say the tough things that when you say I love you, they also hear that. Is that similar or how is it different from Simon Cowell bagging on people so much that when he finally says something kind and nice, it means more to those contestants. So this is something totally out of left field, but it's, uh, I think it's different, but I want to make sure that people understand and don't confuse, you know, you know, being mean and, you know, and I think at the end of the day, Simon did care about the people. Yeah. I think it's different because I think that what I'm, what I'm suggesting is that my words that are not so good, that doesn't mean that they're not so good in like a harsh or mm-hmm. a demeaning or a critical way. My words that are not so good might just mean that my child may not get his preference or my child may have a natural or a logical consequence that he or she may not want or enjoy. So I think that would be the difference. I actually haven't watched American Idol in a very long time, yeah. like maybe over a decade. So well, that's um, when but he was still on my it, memory so. of him is harsh and yeah. it's, it's mean. And so mm-hmm. that would be the, the exact opposite of connection-based parenting. Right. Um, connection-based parenting really minimizes words and overemphasizes connecting emotionally. And so that's a good clarification. And thank you for that. Because when I say my words that are not so good, it means that my child probably isn't getting his preference. And so that's not a, it's not a fun or good thing for him when he doesn't get ice cream. It doesn't mean that I'm like, yo, you lazy loser. Mm-hmm, you didn't do mm-hmm. your spelling homework. Right, like, oh, right. babe, so sorry. You didn't finish your, your spelling homework. So because we didn't finish our spelling homework, we don't get ice cream. That's a natural and logical consequence. Right. Yeah. And that's what I knew you meant. So I just wanted to make sure that Thank my you. understanding was correct <laughs> and you confirmed it. So that was good. Sometimes it works out that way. Other times yes. we surprise each other. So I'm glad that wasn't one of those moments. So, um, I could, we could go on and on. And unfortunately we're kind of running out of time here. So I am going to bring it to the, uh, recommendations. But before I do that, actually, I want to, one of the recommendations, I'm just going to throw it out there again because I, I love the book and it also goes to what Ryan said. It will give me a chance to, to say one more time, a quote Ryan gave at the end, which he said, cooperate more and compete less. We could do so much more together. And, you know, anybody who's listened to this show for like 30 seconds knows that I'm a huge fan of collaboration. That's what I'm about. That's who I am. That's what I am through and through. And Ryan is as well. And, uh, you know, that quote was just fantastic. Loved it. And it reminds me of Rooting for Rivals, which, again, go out and grab it. Uh, I'm not going to go into that book because I already have. And we had an entire episode with Peter Greer on that book uh, recently. So go check that out if you haven't already. But my recommendation today, there's, there's two of them. The first is James Comey's book, A Higher Loyalty, Truth, Lies, and Leadership. Um, the reason I got this book, it, it actually popped up on my uh, library uh, audio book, you know, overdrive suggestions based on some other books. And, you know, I was like, you know what? I'm going to pick that up and see what it, see what it's like. And you've heard so many different things about this guy through the media, right? You know, what, whatever you're listening to or reading, you hear about James Comey, former FBI, FBI director, also held many other roles in government. 
and he wrote about, you know, his time with, with Bush and with Obama and with Trump and the different, you know, styles of, um, leadership. I'm going to use that term loosely. Um, but, uh, he really, um, if nothing else, I strongly recommend reading this book for doing exactly what we've talked about over the last few weeks is understanding different perspective, the value of perspective and to understand that we need to understand where people are coming from before we can make judgments about them or their decisions. And we need to really understand who these people are, what went into their decisions. And it was fascinating to hear how he came to some of the decisions he came to. And it really reminded me of when I, and I recommended this book earlier on too, is Decision Points by George W. Bush. Whether you agree with him or not on the politics, to understand why he made the decisions, I think helps you understand him as a human being, him as, you know, somebody who in his mind made the best decision he could in the midst of impossible decisions. And so this is something, you know, as, as he said, and I've heard so many times, if this, if it, if it ends up on the president's desk, it's pretty much an impossible decision that he has to pick the best of really terrible decisions. And so in the same way, I think this James Comey, uh, he had so many difficult decisions and I came to really, and obviously it's his perspective, but I really came to respect him. Um, you know, he was just someone that I really respected what I could see as a man of integrity, a man who made really difficult decisions in the midst of a ridiculously political environment. Um, and so I, I strongly recommend going out and grabbing that book. And I think after you read it, you'll see why the last recommendation goes to what we talked about earlier, soccer. It's how soccer explains the world an unlikely theory of globalization. Franklin Foer wrote the book, fantastic book. Uh, I read it a long time ago, but I just reminded me of it when I was talking with Ryan. So I thought I'd throw that out there. That's really a bonus recommendation it has nothing to do with orphan and vulnerable children. Um, but it's just awesome. So anyway, I do, as I always do, I pray that you use this podcast, you use everything that you're learning, um, through these different books, through movies, through podcasts, through conversations, through interactions with people. Um, you use all that and you use it to help you understand how you can love orphan and vulnerable children each and every day, better and better. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. And for all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.